Well, we just have a few weeks before uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, and uh, we're finished off our Unanswered Prayer series, and so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to jump back into the book of Ephesians. We've been working through the book of Ephesians uh, almost, almost for a year now, off and on, and so we are picking it up in chapter 4 with verse 1. We've been just kind of going verse by verse and uh, exploring the book. And as we enter into chapter 4, it's actually, as uh, scholars and commentators note, a transition in the book. Uh, if you read through some of Paul's letters, like his other letters, like say the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians, there's a certain kind of style of writing where the first half of the book primarily focuses on what God has done for us, uh, how He has blessed us and His grace and salvation by faith and all those wonderful things. And then after he finishes talking a whole lot about what God has done for us, he transitions into speaking about how we respond to that. And that order, by the way, is the correct order, that we always need to begin with what God has done for us. Uh, John said we love because he first loved us, that we are saved by grace, that it is about grace, his grace that is poured out upon us, and in response to that grace, uh, we serve and love God. We don't serve God to earn our salvation and to earn faith and grace, that's given. And we live out of response to that. And so uh, Paul in chapter 4 is picking up in response. And, and, and so we get this response right in our minds. Let's do a little review of, of where Paul has taken us so far. And again, the first half of this book was primarily themed around what God has done for us in the fact that he, is, he has made us his children and he has given us this new identity. We talked about things like this. In chapter 1, it spoke about how we are saints, how we are in Christ. And remember, that was actually the most common phrase in the Bible used to describe us as followers of Jesus. It's not primarily that we are Christians, it's primarily that we are, we are in Christ. We are covered and held by His grace. Now, we have every blessing in the spiritual realm. We talked about how we are chosen and that we are holy and blameless because of the work of Jesus that we are sons and daughters of the King, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven completely. We have been lavished in His grace, that we have the Holy Spirit. We talk about how we have an inheritance. We talk about how God's power is for us and not against us, that Jesus is above all powers and all authorities, and that we have Jesus in our lives, and, and, and again, we are seated with Him in the heavenly realms, uh, that we are now truly alive in Christ, we are saved by grace, that we have been created for a purpose. We talked about Jesus is our peace and how Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility and that we are called to unity amongst the children of God, not to division. We talked about how we are members of God's household, all of us, all God's kids. We're all a part of the same team. We're in the same household. God only has one household, not three, one household. We talked about how God is more loving than we could ever possibly imagine. I mean, you could just dream up about the most loving God. God is, is way more loving than we could ever possibly imagine. And we spoke about how God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask. And this is amazing, all the things that God has done for us. And so now when he picks up in chapter 4, he says, now that you know all these things, now that you've just been lavished in this amazing grace that we're not called just to sit there, we're called to respond. And so he picks it up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. 
And he says, as a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, again, remember when Paul wrote this, he was chained to a Roman guard in a prison. He had been thrown in prison for uh, speaking about Jesus being king. To some people who didn't want to hear that. Uh, he would actually later be released, but then he would be arrested again. And under Nero, who uh, really despised Christians and, and martyred thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians, Paul would be one of those who would be killed under Emperor Nero. But as he writes this, he is sitting in prison, and he says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, that's, that this then is in response to all that you've heard, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And we have all received a calling. Uh, that if you're in Jesus, you have a calling on your life. That as a, as a child of God, you're not called just to sit back and do nothing. That you have actually been called generically to be salt and light in this world. Uh, to be a part of the kingdom and growing God's kingdom. But each of you also has a personal calling. That God has shaped each and every one of you in a certain way with certain gifts and certain talents that he wants you to use in the marketplace, that he wants to use you in your school, he wants to use you wherever you are to further the kingdom of God. There is a calling on all of our lives to be people who are building the kingdom of God wherever we are. And he says that we're to live a life that is worthy of this calling. And he says this by all the authority of his, this is Paul the apostle, Paul who I mean, who is so dedicated to Jesus. I mean, look, look at who we're talking about here. Paul said this in Ephesians 3. Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I mean, he was... This amazingly dedicated apostle, church planter, he is now in prison, and with this authority, he says to us, he says to the people of Ephesus, I want you to live a life that is worthy of the calling that has been placed on you. Out of thinking about all the things that Jesus has done for us, that there is a way that we need to respond, and we need to respond by living a worthy life in response to all that God has done. Now, what is he going to talk about living a worthy life? I mean, we might think about, uh, well, maybe he's going to talk about that we don't have to sell all our stuff and give it away to the poor, or we got to become a missionary to some strange country, or, you know, I just got to, you know, read the Bible all day and pray all day. Maybe that's what it means to live a worthy life. What is he going to say? What does it mean to live a worthy, worthy life? Well, let's see what he says. This is the first thing that comes to his mind. Be completely Humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He mentions five character traits. He doesn't say, you need to be doing this and you need to be selling and go, going big for God. He's like, first thing, most important thing to live a worthy life in response to all that he has done is heart stuff, is character issues. And we always need to begin with character. I mean, sometimes in the mistake which has given Christianity and churches a bad name, people try to go out and ministry without character. They try to go build the kingdom without character. 
Character is the first thing that comes to Paul's mind, that there are five character traits that we must be working on, that must be growing in our lives if we want to respond to the gospel. And sometimes we jump to other things. Uh, These are things that that please God, that are in line with His will and desire, and that is being humble, being gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, and making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, these traits are becoming more and more rare in our culture. In fact, if you study people who study people, there's a lot of talk in recent years about the rise of narcissism, it's called. And narcissism comes from Narciss, uh, Narcissus, who was from Greek mythology. He was the guy who fell in love with his image in this pool of water. He fell in love with himself. Uh, one doctor put it this way. Narcissism is a serious social and psychological problem and it's growing very quickly. At the same rate, they say, in the last 25 years that, that obesity has risen in North America, that's the same kind of increase in terms of narcissism. Uh, that people volunteer less, they serve less, they give less, they, 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 they think about others less. He says this. Uh, narcissism is a serious social and psychological problem. The term refers to an inflated view of the self coupled with relative indifference to others. People who are high in this trait fail to help others unless there is immediate gain or recognition to themselves for doing so. Often, uh, they think they are above the law and therefore violate it and readily trample over others in their efforts to rise to the top, which is where they think they belong. The characteristic that perhaps most distinguishes non-narcissists from narcissists is empathy. Empathy refers to the capacity, to a capacity and a, a tendency to experience life, not just from one's own, own point of view, but also from that of others. To feel others' joy and sorrow and to care about others' well-being. That this narcissism is growing in our society. Uh, it, it is, is growing at an alarming rate. And some uh, psychologists and people who study people are, again, are saying this is becoming a serious issue. And, and if and you hear about employers trying to look for employees, and it is, this is a problem in all realms. And it affects us. It affects me. It affects you. It affects this church and wherever we are. And so it's always good to be asking ourselves, I mean, is this narcissism, is, is this these tendencies growing in my life? And there's some questions we can ask that kind of describe people who kind of tend towards the the narcissistic side. And and some of those traits would be this, uh, that you have a hard time following orders, that when someone gives you an order or tells you to do something, there's something inside you goes, I don't want you. It's just part of this growing culture. Uh, You have difficulty admitting you made a mistake. You always got to blame someone. You got to shift it. Somehow, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness for that because really it was someone else's fault. You just kind of push it away. Uh, you have difficulty accepting other people's ideas because it's not your idea. And even if it's a great idea, you just don't accept it because you're the one who's got to run the show and you're the one who's important and you just dismiss other ideas even if they're wonderful. Uh, you manipulate people to get what you want. You just subtly twist things. You just subtly, because really the world revolves around you. Uh, you think you're generally better than other people. I'm more spiritual, I'm closer to God, I got everything together. If everyone was just like me, everything would be wonderful. Uh, You demand respect from others and get frustrated when you don't receive it. Uh, Narcissists demand respect. The the Bible says you got to earn it, but they demand it. 
you better respect me. And if they don't get it, they get very frustrated. Uh, they think they deserve to be happy. I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to get a divorce. I deserve to be happy, so I'm going to quit my job. I deserve to be happy, so I'm not going to be nice to you. Uh, you like to depend on yourself rather than asking for help. You're often un, uh, very unsatisfied because you can never be satisfied as living for yourself. It just, you just become more and more empty and you become more and more unsatisfied. Uh, you have a hard time doing something solely for another unless there is something in it for you. And this is just growing. And I guarantee just because we're a part of this culture is growing in all of us. It's growing in me. It's growing in you. And as followers of Jesus, we need to fight against this. As followers of Jesus, Paul is saying to live a life that is worthy of the gospel looks the opposite of this. And so we're going to talk through some of these traits. I think we'll probably get to four today and hit the last one next week. So he says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So be completely humble. And notice he doesn't say be partly humble. He sets the bar high in response to all that God has done to live a life worthy of the gospel. He says be completely humble. Now what does it mean to be humble? And I, and I think the best definition is from Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the the interests of the others. And this is probably the best definition. Humility is valuing others above yourselves. It's the exact opposite of narcissism, where you value yourself above all others. This is valuing others above yourself. And Paul says, I, I want you to be completely saturated with this desire, this tendency to value others above yourself. In fact, it's what we've been set free from, Galatians 5. I love this verse. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You know that? Part of your calling, Paul says you were called, part of your calling is to be free. Jesus says, I've come to set people free. And if you're not feeling today, you're doing something wrong in your Christianity. I mean, we are the most free people. Uh, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, because that just causes you not to be free. Because all of a sudden you're in bondage to sin and Satan. That's not freedom. Freedom is when we're serving Jesus because he is the most free being in this universe. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, but rather serve one another humbly in love. The one of the reasons we're called to be free is that we might serve one another humbly in love. That again, this is one of the first things that should be bubbling out of our Christianity is this, this humble heart. This heart that says, Jesus has done so much for me. Jesus thought of me above all else when he was hanging on the cross. And so I'm going to think about others as I live this life. And there's so much freedom, I tell you, in, in humility. It is a lot of work to live a life that's not humble. Because you're always trying to fight to make sure that you look the best. And that's hard work sometimes. 
always trying to impress people, always trying to buy more stuff so that you look better than anybody else. It's hard to look impressive when, when someone tries to blame you. You've got to think of an idea. How can I shift the blame? How can I blame someone else? You've got to track your lies. And I mean, living prideful is, is a lot of work. It's not free at all. So it, it is so free, and you can just let that all go. I love what Roland Baker said. He said this, It is so relaxing not to have to prove anything. It is so wonderful to see your brothers and everybody else doing something better than you, being more anointed than you. It is fabulous to bless people for their success. It's great to be able to compliment people and lift them up. You don't even care where you are at the table because you have a perfect Savior. You are set. I mean, when you understand who you are in Jesus, that you are so loved, you are so blessed, you're seated with Christ, I mean, it's, it's like you just, you're just free to bless people. You're free to love people. But if you're like, I gotta look impressive, I gotta look popular, I gotta be in the know, I gotta you know, make sure everybody thinks I'm the super Christian, all of a sudden you, you, just gotta, you, you start twisting things and you just become more of, an, of a narcissist. It is so freeing when you're just like, I can bless that person. I'm free to admit when I make a mistake because I know I'm forgiven and I know it's the best thing. It's, you're just free. Are you living free? The freedom of living a humble life. In fact, James says it's the secret to grace. Uh, he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And you know, uh, favor and grace are the same Greek word in the New Testament. That if you want God's favor in your life, if you want, if you want God's grace in your life, it is found in living humbly. I mean, this world says, if I want to get ahead, I need to, to step on people, I need to push people out of the way, I need to look the best. But if you want to get ahead in the kingdom, it's exactly the opposite. It is about going lower and stooping lower and getting lower and lower. And that is when you begin to experience the power and the grace. And that's when you begin to see more of the miraculous in your life because God gives grace and favor and power to those who are humble. We see some of the greatest leaders were just that. Uh, Numbers 12 says Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. He's this amazing leader yet so humble. We see Paul. Paul says, we do, uh, not, uh, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. And a lot of people are just always comparing themselves to everybody else. Look at their clothes. What about my clothes? What about their job? Why don't I have a job? Paul's like, I don't compare myself to anybody. Uh, when they measure themselves by themselves, they compare themselves with themselves. They are not wise. I mean, it just leads you to a silly trap. Just, just live into Jesus. And set yourself free from trying to, to compare yourselves with others in this world. I mean, it is found in humility. Even Jesus, who was the most amazing leader who ever walked this planet, the most amazing guy in the universe, by the way, was humble. In fact, our text, the example of this is Jesus. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Even though he was God, he stooped lower and lower and lower to serve. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then we see Jesus, 
Like in John 13, when the disciples are arguing about who was the greatest, again, comparing themselves with each other and living this narcissistic, prideful world, I'm better than you, and Jesus comes in and he takes off his garment and he takes the position of a slave and he washes the feet of the disciples. The most humble job you could ever think about. Again, it's about going lower and lower and lower. And then after that example, it's interesting what Jesus said. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. And he's like, what's new about that command? That command was in the Old Testament, love people. But Jesus said, a new command. What's new about this? Now we got an example. Now we have a model. Now we see what love is like. Love is about humility. You can't love well if you're not humble. You can't have a loving marriage unless there's two people working on humility. We cannot have a loving church unless we're filled with people who are working on humility. It is found in humility. And this is why he says, a new command I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you. This is after he washes their feet. That's our love. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Again, the, the, the biggest sign is to be our love. As Paul says, the biggest response of, of Jesus is, is to be complete humility. Or we just let go of our pride and just say, you know, I'm here to bless God and I'm here to bless others. And by the way, that actually is what makes you most happy in life. Now, we can't talk about humility without talking about false humility. And we talked a little bit about this in December. But the problem with any of these things is that Satan always will take anything and try to twist it. Uh, he, he's not good at inventing new things. He always takes God's word and he twists it like he did in the garden. Has God really said? <laughs> and and when, he's, he's trying to te- when we're talking about humility, Satan's always going to try to twist it into what is called false humility. And it's almost as bad. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. Great, great preacher, by the way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking less about yourself. No, I said that wrong. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking about yourself less. It's not, it's not about putting yourself down and saying I'm a horrible person and I'm crappy and I, and I can't do anything well. I mean, you know, I'm bad at this and I can't. Do, what's the theme? It's all I, I, I again. It's just focus on self in a different way. Uh, that's false humility. True humility, again, is when you focus on others and you get it off yourself. But Satan loves to twist it to get us, well, I'm a really humble person because I suck. Uh, It's not quite the way it works. And it looks like this. People are like, you know, I'm just not good enough and I'm not talented enough and and I'm such a sinner. I'm not loved enough and I can't do it on my own. I'm just just not deserving. And and they just kind of check out of the kingdom because they think they can't do anything. That's false humility. And by the way, these things are kind of true. And as we talked about in December, there, there's this kind of lower level truth and a higher level truth, and we're not called to live in the lower level of truth, though we, we understand that we're called to live in the higher level truth. I mean, the lower level truth is that you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. I, we make mistakes. We mess up. I'm not good at everything, but God is good enough, and God is in you. That is the truth we live by. You're not talented enough. It's true. There are some things you're not good at. There are some things that I'm horrible at, but you know what? God is big enough. And that is the truth we live in. Uh, you're a sinner, that's right. The Bible says if you claim to be without sin, you make God out to be a liar. But you know, as Christians, our primary identity is saints. 
Uh, very rarely is the idea of us being sinners used in the New Testament. We are primarily saints. That is the higher level of truth. You're not loved enough. I'm not loved enough. Nobody cares for me. Nobody loves me. Yeah, it may be true. There are people who don't like me either. But God loves you. And God loves you perfectly. And that is the truth we live in. You know, I can't do it on my own or I'm not deserving. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That is the truth we live in. And true humility is when you get the focus off you and you put it on God. True humility is when you live by the higher truth. Because when you realize who God is and who God is in you, all of a sudden you're set free to love others. If you focus on the lower truth, you just get self-absorbed and you check out of the kingdom and really you don't get involved in much because you just think you suck. When you say, you know what, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of God, I, I'm a saint, I can do all things through Christ, all of a sudden you just, you just learn to bless other people. And so we need to watch out for false humility and live in, in true humility, which is putting the focus on God, is putting the focus on others and taking it off ourselves. The next he says... Be completely gentle. Again, he doesn't say just be humble and just be gentle. He says completely humble, and I want you to be completely gentle. And the word gentleness in the Bible is the same and often used interchangeably with, with meekness is the word sometimes used in the Bible. And sometimes when you think of those words, we think of weakness. You think of a meek, gentle person, and you kind of think of like a little skinny guy who can't beat up anybody, Right? Uh, that's what we think of. But you know, gentleness in the idea of meekness in the Bible is, has more to do with strength under control. It takes a very mature person. It takes a person of a very strong character to be gentle. Because the idea in the Bible is this. It is the ability to respond to someone who has sinned against you in a calm, loving, and truthful manner. That is how it's most used in the New Testament. That takes a lot of strength. That takes great character. I mean, the easy thing to do is someone sins against you, I'm going to beat you up, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get you back, and I'm going to repay, and you blow up, or whatever. I mean, that's just, just easy. That's easy. The hard thing to do is to be gentle. And this is what Paul's calling us to, that in response to all that he has done, that we need to be completely humble and completely gentle. Titus 3 uh, says, be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one. Imagine if we just did that. Slander no one. That would just change the world. To be peaceable and considerate. And always, again, Paul said completely gentle. He says here in Titus, always to be gentle towards everyone. And that includes everyone. That's what the word means. It's not just those who are nice to you. It means those who really, really, really tick you off and grind you the wrong way. That you're to be gentle with them. And it means those people who really, really hurt you and have really, really sinned against you, we're still called to be gentle. And that takes the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's why you cannot, in fact, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It takes the strength of God in us because it is hard sometimes. Second uh, Timothy, again, talking about when people sin against us is when gentleness comes into play. Second Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Not with a judgmental, I'm better than you attitude because after I got all my theology down and your theology just sucks and you just, no, you correct them with gentleness. That takes strength. 
Because sometimes that Satan whispers in your heart that I'm holier than thou and my theology is better than yours and all of a sudden you just get in a fight and you just want to slam that person and that person walks away feeling completely unloved and judged rather than correcting your opponents with gentleness. Galatians 6.1, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you get angry at them, you distance yourself with them, you blame them, you, di- you just say, no, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person Gently. Gently. Again, there's our word. Strength under control. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. You might be tempted to get angry. You might be tempted to be unforgiving. You might be tempted to distance yourself so that you look all nice and clean like the Pharisees and just leave those problems out there and leave those problem people over and leave that problem Christian over there so I can just stay in my little holy huddle. You correct them with gentleness. So we're called to be completely humble and completely gentle, the first two responses of living a worthy life, he says. Uh, Jesus was gentle. Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest from your souls. And also he talks about being patient. In the New Testament, uh, it speaks of being patient and suffering, but most often it describes the characteristic of not taking revenge or a reluctance to punish wrongs. Uh, sometimes we need to be patient because we're going through struggles or we're, our health is not good and, and, and God's not answering our prayers or our prayers are not being answered like we've talked about in the way we've got to be patient. But a lot of times, again, it has to do with relationships, being patient with each other uh, when people sin against us. Uh, God is patient. Second Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I mean, why does God let this world continue to go on where Satan's doing junk and people are sinning and evil happens? Why? Because he's patient with us in our sin, hoping that more will come to him. And because God is patient with us, we need to be patient with each other. When someone hurts us, when someone sins against us, we are called to patience as God has patience on us. Uh, we are not called to push back, to, to revenge, to take into our own hands. We are called to be patient. As Romans 12 says, do not repay anyone. That means everyone. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It's not always possible. We've got to try our hardest. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to, re- to avenge. I mean, God is the ultimate judge. We are not the ultimate judge. We don't know all the little inter- inter- whatever that word is in people's lives. I mean, but God knows. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's patience. Understanding that God's still at work in that person, even though they really take me off. God is working, and maybe God is one day going to grow them. Or you know that non-Christian is really out there, but I'm going to have patience, because maybe one day through my testimony, my good example of being gentle and humble, they're going to meet Jesus, and one day they're going to be with me in heaven, so I'm going to be patient. God is patient with you. We are called to be patient with each other. And lastly, is that we are to bear with one another in love. 
Ephesians 4.2 puts it this way. Uh, I mean, uh, in the New Living Translation, it says we are to, to make allowance for each other's faults because of our love. Uh, you have faults and I have faults. I mean, I am sure I do things that really just like, you know, that just really is weird when Jesse does that. And I really wish Jesse didn't have that quirk in him. And, and maybe I see that in some of you, right? Uh, but we're, because we love each other, uh, we're to make allowances for each other's faults. You know, it's interesting to me as a pastor how uh, sometimes people come to me and say, like, you know what so-and-so did, and they did this, and it's like, that's pretty minor, you know? And like, some people just get so upset at any little problem they see in someone else's life, yet when they make a mistake, they demand that everybody give them grace. I mean, if you want people to give you grace in your little quirks, you must be willing to give it uh, back the other way. Uh, I mean, could you imagine what community would be like or a marriage would be like or relationships would be like if we just made allowances for each other's faults rather than gossiping or slandering or judging or you know telling little friends what so and so just like you know hey i'm not perfect they're not perfect we're all growing in jesus together becoming better uh, because of the work of the holy spirit i'm gonna be patient with people because i want people to be patient with me again we're called to treat others the way you want to be treated and so these are things that God called us to. And you know, this is the secret to a great marriage, great friends, a great church. Pursue humility, pursue gentleness, pursue patience. Live a life that you make allowances for each other's faults. And there are times if someone is caught in a major sin where you don't, you know, I'm not going to make an allowance for this. I'm actually going to go talk to them. Because sometimes when you see sin damaging someone's life, that's when you step in and you correct them with gentleness, the Bible says. Now, these kind of things are actually all fruits of the Spirit. And if you look at your life, and, and I just gave you a big dose of the case of the guilties, you're like, oh, I'm not very humble, I'm not very gentle. And by the way, as I was writing this sermon, I actually had to write an email to somebody to apologize. Because I felt I'd been a little too harsh to someone on the phone. And, and I said, you know, I was probably not very gentle, and, and I apologize. And, and I'm growing in this, just as you're growing in this. And we grow together. And, and we need to live this. And this is where the more you... Uh, focus on Jesus, the more you're going to see these things at work in you. They're, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, all, all those things. I mean, God is able to break these things if they're not in your life. He's able to break pride. He's able to break ungentleness or uh, when you're not being patient, He's able to work this more and more in your life. I mean, the way we're fruitful in these things is to be intimate with Jesus. I mean, fruitfulness comes from intimacy. There's just no way around it. A lot of people try to be fruitful in the kingdom without intimacy in Jesus. You just can't do it. And so just run to Jesus. Allow him to shape you and change you. I'm going to invite the worship team up and uh, let's stand as we pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you, God, that you don't leave us where we are. I thank you, God, that you want to grow us. I thank you, God, that you want to, to bless our relationships and our marriage and our family and with our friends and in this church. And God, I know your desire is to fill us with, with humility and gentleness and patience, God, and, and a willingness to, to overlook each other's faults. And God, we just open our hearts up to you again. Uh, God, that we, we repent of our uh, pride God, I pray that you would just set red flags off in our heart when, when narcissism begins to take over and we begin to think about ourselves more than others. God, we want to revolutionize 
the Kootenays, God, through your love. God, we want to, but that starts in our home, and we want to start with our home. We want to start here. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to break off stuff that keeps us from loving you. God, that you would break off stuff that keeps us from being humble and gentle and patient. And God, we love you and we respond to you, God, by believing there's power in the name of Jesus.